0: Wow, well, we're live. Okay, welcome back to the podcast episode eight Emma part two. I'm here with my friend Maggie. I'm Chris. Hi, everyone. We're your first impressions podcasters, and we're here to rock your world with our discussion of Emma. I have been drinking all day, so this will get funnier <laughs> earlier than usual
1: hopefully. Yes, Kristen is already drunk and I am here with my um, champagne that was gifted to me for my birthday a few weeks ago and my Girl Scout cookies. So we are ready to party.
0: We are classy as all heck. And this is another podcast being recorded over Google Hangouts on air, which means it will be available via the YouTube channel. If you just go to the YouTube, uh, the, the First Impressions podcast YouTube page, you can watch it if you prefer to see us talking. You but I'm tell sure them
1: why you- we are um, once again recording remotely.
0: Once again, so I I am sick. I woke up sick. I've been very un- non-productive today, but I do my. I feel well enough to podcast. Like I always feel well enough to talk about Jane Austen, but that's <laughs> why I've been drinking all day. Is because I was telling Maggie I can't eat. So, um, like all I want is the calories, it's like the sugar rush. Right? <laughs> you know, like science and all that is you know so <laughs> um so yeah so well, I was there's in, one thing like, we need it's more calories it's, well that's right that's right <laughs> and um like and I'm like in a weird head like I'm so emotional like <laughs> <laughs> I have, like a weird headspace I have you sound glass. really high Actually, I, it's I, funny. I'm Like when I have two glasses of wine and like anything can make me cry like you talk about oh that puppy's so cute I'm like oh my god you're right so I was listening to music, and my favorite artist, Sufjan Stevens, came on. It was my favorite song of all time, Chicago. And I was in the living room, and I was like, it's so beautiful. <laughs> so, so this is going to be an interesting one.
1: <laughs> so when we get when we talk about Emma and Mr. Knightley's relationship, Kristen is just going to devolve into a puddling, puddle a puddle of goo in her
0: tears and I, wine. Well, I hope I don't want to be too <laughs> frank, but I think I think there are some really interesting uh, things to, to say to say about that relationship. But first, let's let's let me just quickly thank all of the fans again, and I want to give a special shout out to someone who actually emailed us for the first time. We got fans! Yay! Emailed. We got fan mail! Like, Yay! It was so great. I did not ask him if I could say his name, so I guess I'll check with him. About you know like okay, his first initial is I. So thank you, Mr. I. It's and like re- it's
1: like reading a letter. Mr. E. Boston, He's like but. Mr. E.
0: He but he this person is um clearly like educated in English literature. Like I I've never I haven't asked we've we've traded like a bunch of emails but I have not asked him his background but he's always like dropping knowledge like he's like read these scholarly essays on JSTOR and like you know like um we need to talk about reader response theory and we have like been talking about the Davies adaptations and I have to say it was a good reminder for me not to because I I said some unkind things about the Davies sense and sensibility and the Davies Emma and I have to remember some people may have liked those movies and so and we also talked about Metropolitan and Wit Stillman and maybe we'll talk about uh, that
1: later. But do you think it's possible that Mr. I is actually a pseudonym that Kevin has adopted because he <laughs> knows how much you love Austin. So you're actually conducting this entire like secret scholarly discussion with your own husband.
0: No because I have not been sexually harassed by Mr. I <laughs> and I think Kevin, yes. I think Kevin is yes. pretty much <laughs> take the opportunity we're we're apart right now my husband is in boise idaho right now and the the long distance sexual harassment has already begun i was (laughs) like kevin would have opened with that that would have been like kevin's (laughs) opening
1: salvo right okay so thank you very much to mr i we really appreciate your emails and your um brilliant commentary on the books and thank you to everyone who has contacted us through our
0: Facebook page, which we have a Facebook page. Yay, Facebook page.
1: Yay, it's called First Impressions, obvi. Uh, and we also have a question, which we'll get to, I guess, at the end of this podcast. We had our first question. We kind of touched on it in our previous episode, um, but it's worth visiting again. So let's get to it, Kristen. I'm ready. Yeah. Let's do
0: this. Without further ado. So this uh, entire episode, or a lot, a large portion of it, we will devote to talking specifically about Emma and Knightley and how we feel about their relationship. Oh, Knightley. At, oh yes. Knightley. I've uh, <laughs> never even seen him before. And she called him Knightley. <laughs> I think you mean Mr nightly mr. Knightley. I no wait, he's george right john is george. his brother Dad, not you call me george like yeah. that's the question <laughs> she's like say, he's like saying at the end he's like emma don't call me a mr Knightley anymore you've called me mr Knightley since you were a child it's weird and and, and she's like i can only ever call you mr Knightley. i can't no, even promise let
1: me tell you what's weird he's 16 years older than her yes which when you reach a certain age that type of age difference doesn't really matter no but he talks about
0: her a lot when she was a little girl and it's creepy well we could we should talk about that but but you're right Which she said i cannot even promise to equal the elegant terseness of mrs elton and call you mr k because remember mrs <laughs> elton calls yeah. her husband mr e yeah and um and she's like you'll always be mr knightley to me and i think that's sweet but also i mean this is the this is why we have to talk about the relationship this is why we have to take take an hour to talk about it because um i don't want to be like inappropriate like we we need to talk about the sexuality of this on a very academic level so please understand that we're not accusing Knightley of like pedophilia or anything no oh i don't think anybody okay hopefully well and there's this unfortunate like joke he makes or he's and it's obviously a joke, but I mean, you have to, you know, you have to understand. You have to understand because yeah. what I was going to talk about, okay, is there's a modern concept of daddy issues, <laughs> okay? Yeah. Right. So right. women are attracted to men. So Knightley is, um, to use another very modern term, he really is a condescending mansplainer. I mean, he, mm-hmm. he he takes Emma to task every time she does something that he does not agree with. Well, and, he is the
1: only one who can see her faults and yes. the only one who will call her out on it. Right.
0: Yes. And it's, she, he plays a very valuable role. And, um, but as I was saying last time, you know, unlike an Edmund Fanny Price relationship, he's trying to guide her and she's constantly challenging him and breaking out of the molds that he's trying to set for her in the path he's trying to lay forward for her. And that's why, that's why we can feel okay. I mean, all right, spoilers. That's why we can feel okay about this because at the end of the day, they are intellectual equals. They fight, they both hold their own, and they um, it's no longer like a, a an older brother relationship or a guardian child relationship. She's grown up enough so that she can really she can really hold her own, and that's where the elect- the electricity and the chemistry comes in. But well, I think um, it's
1: clear that the relationship evolves through the course of the novel. And they definitely have the whole witty banter thing going on. When they do fight, it's not really, at least on Emma's part, it's not really fighting. It's just she says that, you know, with Miss Taylor gone, Mrs. Weston, there's no one who is her intellectual equal for her to converse with. So with Knightley, it's definitely this just kind of witty banter. She just enjoys kind of playing the devil's advocate with him, even if it's something she doesn't necessarily feel strongly about. She likes arguing with him.
0: It's their way of flirting, basically. It is. I mean, it is. And let's go back to the very beginning. And there's a passage you wanted to talk about that I think ties in for the, you know, we'll we'll talk about this chronologically. So we'll sort of develop their relationship and see how we feel about it. But so the, well, what
1: we're going to talk about first isn't, it's kind of a tangent, if you will, from the Emma and Knightley relationship. But it's something that I, it struck me. The book opens with Miss Taylor becoming Mrs. Weston. And we basically meet Emma right during and right after the wedding. And it's something that I think that Austin really nails about um, our emotions as people. And obviously, this is a theme throughout our entire podcast, is that the um, people and characters and social situations that Austin describes are relevant even now. And Emma is torn emotionally when Miss Taylor gets married. On one hand, she is, of course, very happy for her dear friend to have found happiness with a partner. She's also really bummed because her best friend will no longer be living with her, is starting a whole new life without her. And even though she's only moving half a mile down the road, it's completely changing Emma's life. And this is something that really resonated with me because I have been, let me just tell you, I've been to many weddings. (laughs) I have been involved with many weddings. I've Mm -hmm. been a bridesmaid, like, I don't know seven times or something, <laughs> but there you always do have this sense of joy for the couple, also tempered with some sadness because you know your relationship with the person who you've known is never going to be the same. And Emma really embodies that. She's torn between tears and and, and joy. What is it? Tears and joy? Tears
0: and smiles or something? Yeah, something like
1: that. And it's just it's really beautiful, and I think it really just and it also. Starts off by humanizing Emma to me right off the bat. We talked a lot in our last episode about how Emma in part one is very difficult to like. She is very spoiled, but she has very true emotions that I was able to relate to.
0: And there's and, a tie in. That's the tie in to Knightley because she faces, she goes home. Her governess no longer lives with her, which means she and her father are going to spend all their nights together and all their time together and he cannot meet her in conversation rational or playful he's just got the mind of kind of a child a childlike mind and it's it's a it's to borrow a phrase from Northern Abbey it's a picture of intellectual poverty I mean she she's her talents are wasted on a a guy who can't appreciate them and then what happens Knightley walks in and he he brightens up their lives and Mm -hmm. she realizes he'll still be there for her I was telling
1: Bay earlier today um, that I work at home uh, three times during the week. I'm very extroverted in case you weren't able to tell. Uh, I'm very extroverted and I work at home three days a week and I worked today doing some overtime most of the day, which means I didn't really leave the house. When I don't get to see people or interact with people, I can get really weird and (laughs) feel really isolated. And so he's shaking his head, nodding. (laughs) Um, and so, I, I mean, I feel for Emma, I've been a caretaker for a parent. Obviously, her father's not completely decrepit, but he is very much a silly person in the whole Austin tradition. Yeah. And so she must feel very isolated being just the two of them. I mean, of course, they have a whole house staff, but, you know, it's still different when you don't get to see and interact and talk, and it's not like she can just turn on the television, right? It's not an option.
0: And that kind of depth of, of friendship of course they don't have a very large cer- social circle uh anyway because they only can hang out with other landed gentry and the clergy whatever right um, and, and despite
1: all- the fact that mrs weston moves half a mile away when they get an inch of snow on christmas when they're at the party it's a real threat that they might actually be snowed in half a mile away yeah and exactly. Not
0: able to- exactly so that's what we have to talk about next so i'm really glad you bring that up because um, Oh, you're welcome, Kristen. Yeah, you're brilliant. You're a genius. (laughs) The next thing that I um, was this sort of out of chronological order, but uh, to build their relationship, to to lay the groundwork of their relationship, what we observe through Austin's narration is that I don't know if you've ever had this kind of relationship with somebody before where you're absolutely so in tune with them that when something is going down, you just look at each other and you both know what has to be done. Remember that uh, Mr. Knightley and Emma are brother and sister-in-law. So when the extended family gets together, Emma's father gets into these conversations with Emma's sister. Now Emma's sister is also a hypochondriac. So then they start trying trying this one-upsmanship, which still happens at Thanksgiving's all over the country of who knows more about your health and like what crazy trend. And so, um, the father and the sister start sort of like throwing shade on each other's <laughs> doctors. Like, mm-hmm. no, my doctor knows better. No, my doctor knows better. And there's this amazingly written. You shouldn't have gone to the sea. That was crazy. Why would you ever oh go to
1: Brighton? It's so like, you're going to get sick. Oh no. He assured us it would be fine. It was a big, long thing about,
0: whether
1: yes. they should go to the sea or not. And it's
0: step-by-step. Step, Emma and Mr. Knightley can see step-by-step step that this is about to go off the cliff and they know exactly where it's going. And John Knightley is there. George Knight, Mr. Knightley is George Knightley. So his younger brother who is married to Emma's older sister, this guy, oh, there's such a great way of describing it. He he has a bad temper. He really does respect his father-in-law. He really does want get, to uh, get along with everybody, but he's just bad tempers. He has faults of temper. And so he has said sharp things or unkind things to both his wife, Isabella, Emma's sister, and to Emma's father. He has sort of sharply reprimanded them for trying to, like, physic him, as he says, to try and take care of his health. And so this has happened often enough that Emma and Mr. Knightley are just sitting there getting more and more and more tense because they can see it coming. And it's, it's put this way, and this is so real to me, whenever they were hanging out with this, this group of people, they always had to be nervous. They always had to fear the offense, though the offense came not. You know, like they had seen it happen once or twice before, so they were always like, oh, that can't happen again. We can't let John Knightley upset well, this Mr. this is Woodhunt. basically a perfect example, and not even example, this is a perfect
1: summing up of how we all feel when we visit our families for <laughs> the holidays, because they always come over the holidays. Yes. So think about, like, you could be married to the most rational level headed person and but when he gets around his in-laws they just push him to the edge and he just says something and then everyone remembers remember two Christmases ago when John lost
0: it. Absolutely and and, and she also is a master of like detailing everyday conversation. So what she does is she has both Emma and you know Mr. Knightley, George Knightley, break in at various points in this conversation when they see it's going off the rails and they both guide it to different subjects. And it's done so deftly, and you know that they're doing a choreographed dance of "We won't let this happen," and you know we're on, they're on the exact same wavelength about it. And that's that kind of deep connection, and and that that kind of intellectual, you know, both understanding at the same level. I think is is what's so um, what's so striking about it. And then it's exactly as you said. The next thing that happens is that they go to the Mr. Christmas and Mrs. Party. Weston's for Christmas.
1: I loved this scene, by the way, when we're talking, because you want to root for Emma and Mr. Knightley, right? I mean, you want to root for the the hero, the heroine and the hero to work it out. And this was just a great example of them working in tandem, being on the exact same wavelength, him being such a gentleman. And I, I don't know. It was just, I thought it was really, really, a really sweet scene. So I assume you're going to describe it for everyone.
0: No, why don't you describe it? Oh, okay. Don't mind if I do. <laughs>
1: so... <laughs> So the, all of the characters that we know and love at this point have now gone to Mr. and Mrs. Weston's for a Christmas Eve party. And Emma's father, who is anxiety-ridden on a beautiful sunny day in June,
0: yeah.
1: is, of course, nervous about the weather because it looks like it could snow. So they all get there. They're having a very nice time. They calm him down. He's happy. Um, I forget who it is who leaves the room but comes back and reports it has started snowing. So, of course... Right. So, of course, Mr. Woodhouse immediately starts panicking. We're going to be trapped here. We're not going to be able to get home. What are we going to do? Even if we ordered the carriage right now, there's not a guarantee we'd be able to get home. While all this is going on, George Knightley has surreptitiously left the room. Emma's trying to calm her father down. She and Knightley exchanged looks right before he left. Long story short, too late he comes back. He has already ordered the carriage. Everything is taken care of. Mr. Woodhouse can go right into the carriage and go right home. No problem. And it's just this amazing moment where the two of them shared just a glance and communicated all of this. And he went and took care of it all.
0: I'll read the passage. It was just, I thought it was beautiful. It is beautiful. I mean, it, you get, and you get the sense in them, even in the brevity of the writing, you get, you get the sense of their relationship and he does he walks all the way out to the main road and he comes back and he's mm-hmm. like there's a little bit of snow it's cool and then he's, yeah. and she's he's like, like
1: oh, when we had the blizzard he's the person who will like walk out to the main street and be like can we get out in the car how much <laughs>
0: shoveling yeah, do, right? I mean, everybody else at the party is like urging or recommending based on what they want to do. Like, Mr. Yeah. Weston's like, no, it's fine, stay. And John Knightley, who only cares about hanging out with his wife and kids, is like, oh, I hate, you know, we got to go right now. We can't be snowed in here with these people. <laughs> um, and so, Mr. Knight, it says, while the others were variously urging and recommending, Mr. Knightley and Emma settled it in a few brief sentences thus. Your father will not be easy. Why do not you go? I am ready if the others are. Shall I ring the bell? Yes, do. So they 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 have like this, you're going to go, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's make, you know, and they make it happen. It's, they the, get they're, shit they're, done, which I personally so don't need. Appreciate. Yeah, right. not yeah, they, don't, they don't need. Sorry, I kind of talked over what you, what did you just say?
1: I just said they get shit done and I like that. <laughs> Yes. That's the way I try to live my life, you know? And that's so when when I see that kind of cooperation, it makes it makes my little type A heart happy.
0: And uh, you know, that's something you can really that's a foundation for happiness for sure. And you were that's what side tangent, that's when Emma goes home with uh, Mr. Elson. Oh Lord, he's drunk and you said something so funny to me earlier today. (laughs) (laughs) Because I I think everyone needs to understand. Kristen and I,
1: basically, every interaction we have of each other references often in some way. I'm not kidding. Um, she'll just randomly quote things to me, like we were texting earlier to yeah. decide the time we were going to meet. So she was sending me Emma texts about her sore throat. So I think I said something like, if she doesn't show up, uh, Mr. Elton will propose to me, and I'll have to slap his ass right out of the carriage. <laughs> basically, I mean, that's the, regi- that's the modern version of <laughs> what Emma... <laughs> does she just kind of shoots him down
0: yeah completely wouldn't be ladylike to slap him but she totally would have she meant she (laughs) slaps him (laughs) so the next thing that we we do need to talk about this this disagreement they have though and but you mean um emma
1: and mr knightley they basically i think have two main disagreements during the course of the novel and they both happen within the first third
0: there's Look. something so beautiful before this all even goes down. There's something that encapsulates their relationship. There are two of these moments, I think, that encapsulate their relationship perfectly of this sort of annoying older brother who's always finding fault and giving her advice, and the young woman who's trying to break free and be her own person and be like, No, I'm just as smart as you.
1: And uh, cue um, the uh, that Ariana Grande song, right? Which one? The is it called Break Free? I'm not going to sing it, Kristen. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. this, this is the part when I say I don't want to. <laughs> stronger than that. You know that one? And oh, yeah, yeah, I know that one. Yeah. Okay.
0: Yeah. Um, feel so Anna sings that, that out, and she does a way. pop and walk routine. <laughs> and um, she wears her kitten ears like Ariana. And, but, but what she – so remember, she's painting – she's drawing Harriet, right? Harriet poses mm-hmm. for – portrait and Emma is drawing her and Mr. Elton who's trying to woo Emma is slobbering all over this painting oh it's so perfect it's so good it's so great it's amazing you're actually a really really good way of putting it he's slobbering all over it and Knightley is standing behind Emma and and he says he just says you have made her too tall Emma (laughs) and then the next line is which I love to a thousand pieces the next line is Emma knew that she had but would not own it (laughs) (laughs) <laughs>
1: um, my favorite part of this podcast is when Kristen says something that she finds hilarious and then laughs, <laughs> for like a little 30 seconds
0: i, I would say emma is a comic creation and there are so yeah. many parts that when i read them now i laugh out loud but but we, we'll talk about so let's talk let's move into talking about robert martin and harriet smith and remember the disagreement between them is that emma wants harriet to marry mr elton and she's trying to get that worked out When in the meantime robert martin proposes to harriet and he's mr knightley's tenant so he's a farmer he's right. not genteel right so then knightley figures out that what's emma is up to and that's where they have the scene with the shooting arrows and um in the, what, in the movie in the movie with he explains to her he's like oh you know Um, but he's i mean he's right he's just really condescending in his manner well
1: here's the thing i feel like one of the things i really enjoy about their interactions is that usually they are both right in some way and both wrong in some way um and he actually admits to her later that he was wrong about harriet she overestimates harriet's uh how do i say this without being rude um, awesomeness, <laughs> but he, he really kind of underestimates her, uh, in, in, uh, Gwyneth, uh, Lord, in Emma's mind, Harriet is kind of this, she is very much like Emma because Emma just kind of projects herself onto Harriet, I think, a bit. And so she could totally marry someone like Mr. Elton. And Mr. Knightley is like, are you kidding me? They do- She doesn't even know who her parents are. Like, this is not going to happen. She's the silliest girl. She's dumb as a rock, blah, blah, blah. And so I feel like he is overly harsh on Harriet, which later he does apologize for. Um, but a- I like
0: that they're both kind of right, but both kind of wrong. And then they have this scene where they're sort of coming together and apologizing to each other and deciding to let sleeping dogs lie, basically, I mean. Yeah. He- she sort of they got use, and She uses
1: the children, right? uses her, her, little girl in her arm. Yeah, and he's like, well, we he's can like, both
0: agree <laughs> that this child is adorable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much what they say. But one of the things they do say is. um, she goes, how fascinating that any discordancy between us must always arise from me being wrong. That's yes, pet, right? oh, it's I love
1: that line. Because, I don't know, I love my brother, but I feel like this is kind of the thing, too. Like, oh, I'm always wrong, of course, of right? Of course. It's always me. It's never you.
0: I'm always wrong. And he says, well, I am 16 years older than you. And she's like, well, right. how does lapse of 21 years narrowed the gap? But she's making yeah. a point. She's like, yeah, we're not, I'm not a baby anymore. You're not a 16-year-old. We're yeah. both adults now and she's trying to hold her own and then he says this which is like damn Knightley." he says i have the advantage of you in not being a pretty young woman and a spoiled child mm-hmm. it's like damn okay just her drink in tell his us base. how you really feel <laughs> like, she should have <laughs> thrown her cocktail right in his face but that she's used to hearing that from him that's the thing about their relationship is he's always like yeah. negging her like that you know and um also slobbering all over she doesn't seem to take it personally right when he says things like that it's stasis that's their
1: stasis let me ask you a question though something that i noticed um do you think that knightley to people that he is close to is actually kind of an asshole because there's a scene in the beginning as well when he's talking to mrs weston formerly miss taylor he basically says to her face you were a shitty governess because look at how spoiled Emma is. I mean, he says it to her. I was just rereading on an airplane when I was going to California a week ago. And it, it like, blew my mind. They're having a conversation. They're talking about Emma. And, of course, um, Mrs. Weston loves Emma. Mr. Knightley is always happy to point out Emma's faults. And he's basically like, if you hadn't let her walk all over you because you were yep. such a shitty governess. And I was just like, oh, damn i know <laughs> and
0: he's he, but that's the that's the thing about okay and first of all she reacts like oh nightly you know you get the sense yeah, that I like, oh, have this oh argument you oh you. yeah but
1: it was crazy
0: but you know, the other thing you notice is he only does it to people who are his intellectual equal and people right. he knows can right. take it when there are people who are just dumb or or yeah. you know like lesser in social Let's standing, miss bates miss bates for example. he's super nice and will help her out oh my god him.
1: Kristen. Kristen, am I Mr. Knightley? Because I kind of am a total jerk to my really close friends, and we always joke, like, that's how you know we like you. Um, well, I, okay, I'm having a moment of, like, self-awareness here, and I, I don't like it.
0: <laughs> no, I don't think that's the case, but let me quote Emma to you. I, you always demand the best treatment, you because you never put up with any other you always deserve the best treatment because okay. you never put up with any other that's a quote from the end of the book that she says to him I always deserve the best treatment and I've always read that and and thought oh is that how that works
1: yeah <laughs> like so I've been that's why off.
0: I can be such a
1: mean person <laughs> it's because I just demand the wow. best treatment okay but <laughs> I,
0: I, I, feel, I feel like if you establish yourself as a nice easygoing person When you try to push back on people who treat you kind of badly, it comes back on you and people are like, why are you so mad? You know, like you're way out of control. Just because you're acting differently than you normally would, you're trying to stand up for yourself. Whereas somebody who's just always like laying it all out there and being blunt and saying what they really feel those people get away with it with no repercussions their friends already accept that they're like that and I think that's very true um I mean she says it as a joke in the book but there's some there's a ring of truth to that as well um and she does a good example sorry I think this is a good example of how Mr. Knightley
1: more than some of the other more recent maybe Austin um, love interests that we've looked at is kind of more, maybe because he's older, he is like a more fully formed three-dimensional character. Uh, like I just said, I see parts of that in my character where we will give the people we are closest to a hard time. We will make fun of them sometimes say things that cross the line, but that's a very um, real personality quirk to have and while i think that maybe it's just because it's caught up in i mean when i make fun of people i feel like it's kind of clear because of the language that we can use they didn't in regency era you know it, you were kind of more restricted in the language that you, you wouldn't be like miss taylor you are the worst ever <laughs> lol
0: you know lols you know he wouldn't say something you like have that to Be respectful you have to like do your duty and be respectful Right, but it's still reading it now. You're like, that was
1: really kind of harsh. But there are so many
0: harsh slams in this book. There are so many times where I was like, "Damn, you know," like you you can't say, despite the fact that Mister Knightley, I just argued about
1: how he kind of underestimated Harriet. You, I don't think you could argue that he doesn't see into the heart of people very well. I mean, it's probably really true that Miss Taylor was kind of a shitty governess, right? Oh yeah.
0: Well, you can tell <laughs> so it's not like like the he's not speaking Emma, the truth. You can you can tell that in the way Emma turns out and you know the things he says like like um you know that should not matter as you always did just as you please. That's a quote from the movie. Yeah. I have to double check whether it's in the book. But um, you know you know that that's true because of how highly she thinks about herself because you hear her narcissistic um, mm-hmm. flourishes in her own, you know, the author's narration, which is actually Emma's narration. And um I, I wanted to talk about Jane Fairfax, and for, for our, our for our um, fan, Mr. I, there's a passage that we have to talk about that he's so right about. But so setting up nightlifts. so Emma Emma does not like Jane Fairfax, and we have always already covered last time why, because she's always cried up by everybody, and I think part of the uh, subconscious reason that she doesn't like her is because Mr. Knightley is always saying how awesome Jane Fairfax is. And because they do have this latent attraction to one another, we assume she she's rejecting that on that. She's resentful of that also. But anyway, um, I have just this passage where Mrs. Weston is talking to Emma. Now Mrs. Weston has an idea that Mr. Knightley loves Jane Fairfax, which is not true, but she says, I have heard him speak. And so must you so very highly of Jane Fairfax. The interest he takes in her, his anxiety about her health, his concern that she should have no happier prospects. I have heard him express himself so warmly on these points. Such an admirer of her performance on the pianoforte and of her voice. I have heard him say that he could listen to her forever. And that totally ties into the fact that the night after they hear Jane Fairfax play, and then Emma also plays she acknowledge, she knows in her mind that Jane Fairfax is so good at the piano and at singing and she thinks to herself if i had only listened to miss taylor and practiced more as a child i would have been that good and she she grieves over the the not getting being a refill cool. In case yeah, she grieves over it. not looking Thank as cool you. as Jane, and she says she sits down and practices for half an hour—a full half an hour, a full half an hour. <laughs> <laughs> half an hour. <laughs> or does it say hour? I think it says half an hour. I could be wrong, but I could be—I could be wrong. But I do. Funny. I don't. Know. I feel like
1: though. It, I mean, that's one of the things. If I remember correctly, she's not rude about it or anything like that. She just kind of acknowledges that Jane Fairfax is way better with her. She's not overly bitter about it or anything like that it's just
0: kind of like whoa I need to practice more I was wrong it's an hour and a half so the passages the other circumstance of regret related also to Jane Fairfax and there she had no doubt she did unfeignedly and unequivocally regret the inferiority of her own playing and singing she did most heartily grieve over the idleness of her childhood and sat down and practiced vigorously an hour and a half.
1: <laughs> wow 90 minutes I mean I, I, I played flute that's a long time.
0: It is a long time so I, but she's I am not, aligned, that would have Emma. been
1: a perfect that would have been a perfect opportunity for Emma as like a mean girl to have been really mean to Jean Fairfax about it like made some kind of snotty remark. Or tried to make her feel bad about being so talented. But she doesn't. She's just kind of like, whoa, I need to practice more. She's
0: classier than that. But remember, that was the same party where she imparted her suspicions about Jane Fairfax loving Mr. Dixon. That's she true. She doesn't have talk smack about her. So she's talking smack behind, sort of behind her back a little, yeah. bit. A little bit. But she is too, she's too classy to say something that would hurt Jane Fairfax's feelings openly. Unlike Mrs. Elton, who says things that have second meanings and backhanded compliments and all this stuff all the time, Emma's above that kind of thing, for sure. Well, this reminds
1: me of um, the Kathy Griffin <laughs> stand-up routine where she's saying, I don't talk about people in front of them, that's rude. I was brought up the right way. I talk about people behind their backs. Yeah. It's called
0: manners. <laughs> and what we're talking about, Knightley and Jane. I don't have it here, but the uh, my other favorite part of this entire book. I guess I have three. So this is the second one. And Wait, I what was the first? What was the first part? The first one was that um, Emma knew that she had, but would not own it. Um, yes, right. So I'm, <laughs> So then the next thing is Mrs. Weston again is, you know, again is convinced that Knightley actually loves Jane Fairfax. So there's one scene where Knightley, Mrs. Weston and Emma are all hanging out and Mrs. Weston starts baiting him and she starts trying to make him admit Mm -hmm. that he is interested in Jane. And he says, um, he says this, he, he said, and I, I wish I could read it, but I don't have it marked. He says something like, you know, Jane Fairfax is a, a wonderful person, but she, uh, she does have a fault. She lacks an open temper, which a man wishes for <laughs> in a wife. And the yes. next line is, Emma could not but rejoice to hear that she had a fault.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, we've, talked, we've talked a lot about the Gwyneth Paltrow movie version of the book. And one thing that I think is really interesting is the casting of Jane Fairfax. In the book... I always pictured her as just being this like kind of always sickly. She's always sick, right? She's always sick. And it turns out she's lovesick and she's
0: tortured. And it's, oh, it's so tragic. Cause she's
1: a hidden engagement. But in the in the movie, they've cast this very kind of mysteriously darkly beautiful. I should really look up on IMDB who it was, because I wanna say it was Polly Walker who was in Rome, but I don't know if that's true. Um, anyway, but she is very much kind of a very attractive, very sensual looking woman. And so it, it kind of, when Mrs. Weston is thinking that Mr. Knightley might be in love with her secretly, you could kind of see it. Reading the book, it's just kind of like, nope, <laughs> nope, sorry, yeah. nope.
0: And Frank, Frank Churchill and everybody, but especially Frank Churchill is sort of obsessed with her skin. And like the oh yes, her her, uh, her complexion, the right? Complexion, it's like brown. She's like a light tan color and he's like, she really needs no fuller bloom. Cause you know, you're supposed to have rosy cheeks. That was what was beautiful back in the day. Like you're everyone. supposed to be like alabaster with rosy cheeks. Who does that remind you of Kristen? <laughs> well, I have one very attractive friend who meets all those criteria.
1: Oh, Holy crap. It was Polly Walker.
0: Oh snap. Look at yeah, you. Yeah.
1: So if you've seen her, she's just this like darkly sensual, beautiful. And it just didn't match to my, to me, the description of the book.
0: It certainly Sorry. she just certainly doesn't have much chemistry with Ewan McGregor. I have to say, you um, and McGregor in that movie is so ridiculous that nobody has chemistry with him. Maybe the big. horse. Yeah, I guess we're not. <laughs> I guess we're not supposed to root for him. So maybe. No, yeah, maybe the horse. Yeah, right. That. Word. Oh my god. What I was gonna say. Yeah. Oh man. What I was gonna say is um, that my third. Okay. The third part of this book, that when the when I read it for the first time because it's not in the movie when I read it for the first time when I read the book for the first time I laughed out loud so loud I was like a huge ha and you know Austin is not the kind of funny that you normally like crack up and like laugh till you cry um even though I do but I know a lot of people you know it doesn't necessarily land like the comedy of today yeah. it's um, more like oh I
1: see what you did there Miss Austin yeah.
0: What's happening? Okay, so Chris, Kristen, what's your third favorite part of the book? My, th- my third favorite part of the book. This is Knightley's sense of humor. We have little flashes and glimpses of his sense of humor so that when he's hard on Emma and when he's condescending, we already like him because he said some funny things. So this scene, he is uh, down on the street, like going somewhere, and Miss Bates and uh, Frank Churchill and Emma and Jane Fairfax and everybody are visiting this Miss That's amazing. So Ms. Bates sees Mr. Knightley and she throws at the windowsill and she just sticks her head oh, out. Oh, Mr.
1: Knightley! <laughs>
0: Mr. Knightley! Does she halloo at him? She, she, she starts talking about the dance and she's talking loud and she goes on and on. And, and she goes, oh, Mr. Knightley, what a delightful party last night. How extremely pleasant. Did you ever see such dancing? Was it not delightful? Miss Woodhouse and Mr. Frank Churchill, I never saw anything equal to it. <laughs> and of course this is also kind of secretly pissing him off because he yeah. hates the facts he's in that love with him. Up. and he and so he's like now i have to compliment them and they're i know they're listening so he goes oh very delightful indeed i can say nothing less for i suppose miss woodhouse and mr frank churchill are hearing everything that passes and raising his voice still more i do not see why miss fairfax should not be mentioned too i think miss fairfax dances very well And Missus Weston is the very best country dance player, without exception, in England. Now, if your friends have any gratitude, they will say something pretty loud about you and me in return. But I cannot stay to hear it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) How great would it have been, though, if he had been like, "Oh my God, Frank Churchill, that guy's such a sleaze," or something? (laughs)
0: He's too classy. But uh, he is,
1: is, and one needs hardly even to look at Mr. Knightley to know that he is a gentleman.
0: You know, what I was going to say that I forgot is that I I was, you know, as I was thinking about this podcast and thinking about the things I want to talk about, I was also thinking when I saw the movie in theaters for the first time in 1996, I did not know the story. And again, the movie we're talking about is the Gwyneth Paltrow of Jeremy Northam adaptation. Oh, Jeremy Northam. I did not know the story at all. I did not know Emma and Knightley were going to get together and being young and dumb. I missed some of the clues that the filmmakers planted. Chris, and I you also... are adorable. <laughs> what were and you like I...
1: 14? How old were you in
0: 1996? 13. I, I, I was, I was th- like 13. Yeah. And um, I also missed the clue that when Emma is singing a song and Frank Churchill in his peacocky way just stands up and starts singing the harmony like a weirdo. They, they, they cut to Jane Fairfax's face. And now she is looking very like emotional and having seen the movie so many times since then, I can totally see how they were setting up her feeling like they were showing us her face and, you know, and, uh, but it's very subtle. And I did not pick up on it then. And I also did not pick up on the clues about Knightley and Frank Churchill until they're all at this dance together, so and and even in the book that it, at this dance, this is the first time that we start to feel Emma's attraction to Knightley physically. Uh, mm-hmm. There are very very few physical descriptions of characters in Austen, um, and we know Emma has a hazel eye, and mm-hmm. Harriet Smith has light eyes, but it, we get the eyes. We don't get really any more than that, or the skin, the complexion, um, and. We, and uh, so when We know I- everything about everyone's
1: countenance and complexion.
0: Yes. So Emma sees Knightley. Here it is. Knightley's there. And he is, rather, rather than dancing, he, he is one of those men that still exists today. In fact, there are majority of the men today who are like, oh, I hate dancing. I hate dancing. Because Knightley is, he is reserved. He's not like a gay, happy, jovial person. And he's like, oh, I hate dancing. So he goes to this dance. Frank and and Emma are the talk of the evening, and she's rich and handsome, and he's like, you know, the darling of the town, and they're dancing together, but he is over standing with the old men, and I think he's kind of putting himself there out of self-pity. Because he's feeling shunted his side. And by this time, he knows that he loves Emma. So he has to just sort of watch her with this Frank Churchill guy. And so he's like, well, forget it. I'm an old guy. And he's going to stand over with the old men. But this is what it says. He could never have appeared to greater advantage, perhaps anywhere, than where he had placed himself. His tall, firm, upright figure among the bulky forms and stooping shoulders of the elderly men was such as Emma felt must draw everybody's eyes. And, excepting her own partner, there was not one among the whole row of young men who could be compared with him. He moved a few steps nearer, and those few steps were enough to prove in how gentlemanlike a manner, with what natural grace he must have danced, would he but take the trouble. Whenever she caught his eye, she forced him to smile, but in general, he was looking grave. She wished he could love a ballroom better, and could like Frank Churchill better. He seemed often observing her. So this is a, a physical description where we Ooh. can see that she takes him seriously sexually. And so it's upping the chemistry between them. Tell me more about his tall figure. I know. Read uh, it again, Kristen. Read it again. Read it again. <laughs> then it's the next piece. Yeah. Uh, read it slower. Yeah. Um, <laughs> <laughs> then it's on the this next This is not that piece. type of podcast. <laughs> yeah. Well, yeah, It could right. be. We're supposed to be. How good. much wine have you had? That, a lot. We're supposed to be rejecting any <laughs> any any feelings of like lust for the Austin heroes, and well, and I want to talk about that too. I do want to talk about how these two folks, you know, Emma and Knightley. We do have to be invested in their relationship, but they do. This is probably, you know, obviously she couldn't have written it differently, but they do kind of seem frozen below the waist, you know. Well, but that's <laughs> all of Austin's characters. I mean, it's, we've touched on this with Mansfield Park a
1: bit. Um and that's I actually a sexy think that, novel though. I think that's <laughs> I think that sometimes ha-ha, here's, here's your obligatory podcast haha reference listeners. <laughs> <laughs> I think that maybe after we're done going through the um the novels one by one, we can talk about kind of specific topics overall and I think sexuality in Austin might be an interesting topic to touch on because we have talked about how she was restrained by the the social conventions of the time
0: yes of course she was. by
1: not so, being able to mention certain things I mean she wouldn't even write a proposal scene right because it was too it was personal too
0: emotional too mu- it was too much it's right. on the top so and I that definitely I
1: was... not going to get too much sexuality
0: no of course not and and so I'm going out I'm going out on a A limb here and I I know I'm not saying she should have written anything like and I know she couldn't but when I think about these characters and apply my rule of reality all the characters seem so real except for in this one aspect and we're supposed to believe that Knightley did not know that he loved Emma in a romantic way until Frank Churchill came into the picture and he started to feel jealous and maybe that's true but I don't know. I feel like as a, a red-blooded English man that he would have, about the time she started looking really good, started having these thoughts like, I would totally take Emma behind the stables. You know what I'm saying? Oh, my God. You know oh, my God. Stanley, cover your eyes. Don't I, look. <laughs> Stanley. And the, I mean, the other it's thing is what I think, I think that, Knightley is one of the Austin heroes that we can say for sure is not a virgin. As oh, I, I was just going to ask you that. I was just <laughs>
1: going to ask you that. I was going to say, Kristen, but you're not telling me that he's virgin, right? Because he's, what, 34, 35? For sure he's not. I mean, of course, no, on oh, paper he no. is. He's um, also he a to be- tenant. I mean, he's, like, not a tenant. He's the landlord, and there's all kinds of, like, farmer's daughters. No but I here's mean, the thing you talk about how they are frozen below the waist though frank turnchill does not come off that way he doesn't right he's a big flirt yeah you're right he openly flirts with emma so he does not seem that way i think everyone else because of her books she has to write the characters just kind of underplaying that aspect
0: i have to say all of them all of the mansfield park uh sexual libertines are, they seem very sexy to me as well. Henry Crawford, for certain, and Mary. Well,
1: yeah, but Kristen, that's you. It's your favorite book in yeah. the world, in the whole wide world. I can back but up. Northanger I can... Abbey, Northanger Abbey's a good example of where it is not really underplayed. It is kind of clearly at the forefront.
0: Yes, and of course, Mary Ann in Sense and yes. Sensibility. So there, and I feel like there are... So your po- I take your point is well taken. It's not everyone who is
1: but it has to be comparatively. I guess we could say comparatively. In that, but talks to to me more about Mr. Knightley's past conquests. I'm very interested in your (laughs) theories.
0: I don't know. I, I can't, but I just know you just know. I mean, he's so mature. Oh my God. And we have to talk about this one thing. Okay. We have to talk about, I can't believe I forgot to talk about this because this is my big thesis. When Emma and Knightley are arguing about whether or not Harriet can conceivably marry Mister Elton, and she say, "Oh, you know, like she thinks she's in the right." Well, what he says to her is this: He's what he thinks is, "Oh, you're young and dumb." But he says mm-hmm. this: He says, "In unreserved moments, yes. Oh, men, I love this part. Yes, okay. when only men are present, he has spoken of a large family of women with twenty thousand pounds apiece from both." All right, So this is a Balls. information. yes, in ball. Balls. <laughs> when Emma stumbles, when she does make this match that goes awry and we could say, oh, she's so young and dumb, no, she does not have access to the same information that Knightley has. Mm-hmm. The patriarchy is holding her back from being as smart as Knightley. It's not necessarily her own mental abilities. And I think that's another way that we can feel okay as feminists you know, with their relationship is because she's not dumber than him and he's not coming in and mansplaining to her that that there there actually is a reason for why she doesn't have the whole picture. And it's because of men and how awful they are off screen. (laughs) (laughs) But now um, we, I think it's time to move in to the Box Hill scene and what happens at Box Hill and this, this really important event in in Emma and sort of like a, like a, where everything blows up. Mm-hmm. So are you ready? Are we ready to talk about Box Hill?
1: <sighs> well, I don't have any more champagne in the bottles like 10 feet away. So I can't get to it, but I think we're ready.
0: So as we know, so we're they're all at Box Hill. Pretty much everybody is at Box Hill, which is, and they're having a picnic. I mean, it's a sightseeing. It's kind of a, right. a day. But Mrs. Elton is sort of being, so just sort of putting Emma down in these little ways, and mm-hmm. everybody's sort of in a bad mood. And the reason everybody's sort of in a bad mood is because many of them are unacknowledged lovers. Right. So Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax have had a falling out, and they are un- very unhappy with each other.
1: And is this is this the falling out of a result of Frank Churchill <laughs> shamelessly flirting? that's
0: part of it and also the mr dixon thing well, that, I mean, that's part of it but also what happens is he's riding on a horse and he meets jane fairfax halfway down the lane and he wants to walk her back to highbury and she's like no if people see us walking together it'll be mm-hmm. and he gets really mad and that that's one of the things i mean i know she doesn't like the mr dixon thing but she's she put up with it for a really long time which yeah. is this is really surprising um given what a moral person she's supposed to be (laughs) um yeah yeah so what happens because they have this love respect oh and the other unacknowledged lover of course is Knightley, who loves emma so frank churchill being pissed off at jane fairfax decides he's gonna flirt with emma and he even more than usual yes even more they flirt excessively um, and Emma says, Emma even knows, she's like, no English word but flirtation could very well describe their interactions. Mr. Frank Churchill and Miss Woodhouse flirted together excessively. They were laying themselves open to that very phrase, um, and to having it sent off to in letters to their extended relations, blah, blah, blah. And it, this is so interesting to me. Too. This is another fascinating insight into people. Uh, it says, not that Emma was gay and thoughtless from any real felicity. It was rather because she felt less happy than she had expected. She laughed because she was disappointed. And though she liked Frank Churchill for his attentions and thought them all, whether in friendship, admiration, or playfulness, extremely judicious, they were not winning back her heart. She still intended him for her friend. So outwardly, they look like their lovers. Inwardly, Emma's just pushing herself to fulfill a picture of what should be. And I think that's really interest- interesting. So I think that's hear- very
1: relatable for people too, especially young women.
0: And then this happens. Oh, and this, this is so... Is this the Miss Bates slam? Not quite yet. Okay, that's epic. This is Mr. Knightley oh. though. This is- okay, so here, here's Frank Churchill and he's, he's being loud and he's saying loud things. And he says... "'I say nothing of which which I am ashamed,' replied he with lively impudence. "'I saw you first in February. "'Let everybody on the hill hear me if they can. "'Let my accent swell to Micklem on one side and Dorking on the other. "'I saw you first in February.' "'And then, whispering, "'Our companions are excessively stupid. "'What shall we do to rouse them? "'Any nonsense will serve. "'They shall talk. "'Ladies and gentlemen, I am ordered by Miss Woodhouse,' who, wherever she is, presides, to say that she desires to know what you are all thinking of. Some laughed and answered good-humoredly. Miss Bates said a great deal. Mrs. Elton swelled at the idea of Miss Woodhouse's presiding. (laughs) Mr. Knightley's answer was the most distinct. Is Miss Woodhouse sure that she would like to hear what we are all thinking of? (laughs) That is such a specific slam he knows she knows that she is behaving badly right and that is such an open reproach like is Miss Woodhouse sure she wants to know what I'm thinking like it's well, she can especially... also
1: always be pretty sure that Mr. Knightley is in some way being critical yeah, of her that's right that's
0: true that's true she does laugh it off she just laughs it off but I'm yeah. here thinking like damn Knightley and then there's, there's a, a lot, lot of damn Knightley in this book, in this book. and then before we talk about the insult, I want to talk about uh, Frank and Jane. And they're hanging out, and they, they're within each other's earshot. And Frank starts to talk about people who get engaged after a short amount of acquaintance, mm-hmm. which is exactly what happened with him and Jane in a right. public place. They met in Weymouth, which is sort of like Bath right? Uh, how well they suit each other, one another, he's saying about... Mr. and Mrs. Elton, very lucky marrying as they did upon an acquaintance formed only in a public place. They only knew each other, I think, a few weeks in Bath, peculiarly lucky. For as to any real knowledge of a person's disposition that Bath or any public place can give, it is all nothing. There can be no knowledge. It is only by seeing women in their own homes, among their own set, just as they always are, that you can form any just judgment short of that it is all guess and luck and will generally be ill luck how many a man has committed himself on short acquaintance and rooted all the rest of his life shit right (laughs) (laughs) miss fairfax who has seldom spoken before except among her own confederates spoke now such things do occur undoubtedly she was stopped by a cough (laughs) churchill turned to her to listen "'You were speaking,' said he gravely. "'She recovered her voice. "'I was only going to observe "'that though such unfortunate circumstances "'do sometimes occur to both men and women, "'I cannot imagine them to be very frequent. "'A hasty and imprudent attachment may arise, "'but there is generally time to recover from it afterwards. "'I would be understood to mean "'that it can only be weak, irresolute characters.' whose happiness must always be at the mercy of chance who will suffer an unfortunate acquaintance to be an inconvenience and oppression forever. Damn. Yeah. (laughs) like Damn. Damn. That is like throwing down. That is like a really serious bite. It's like a really serious thing to say. Like, yeah, we're engaged. And I'm talking about how awful it is to be engaged to you in code.
1: Yeah. She's like, I'm talking about you.
0: P.S. Yeah. Uh,
1: this is, but this is why, Emma, you are well-served to read Emma more than once. Because yes. there are all these, oh, this is going to be great for Arnie. There's all these things going on behind the scenes. Absolutely. Uh, that as in your first read, you may not catch the um, all of the details and all of the foreshadowing.
0: Yeah. And even halfway through the book, when you do get that chapter from Knightley's perspective, where... Jane Fairfax and Frank Churchill nightly observes them passing a secret message back and <laughs> forth. And, and, you know, as a reader, you read that and you're like, Oh, a clue. Nightly. I mean, um, you know, Ch- Frank and Jane have something going on. I read that and then I go on reading the book and it's almost like I forget that I was told. Oh, that I because-
1: totally, it, I totally, I remember I first read this book in high school and I was just completely taken by surprise. And then in retrospect, when you go back and read it, you're like, well, duh. But at the time, I was like, where did that come from? That's completely left field. And Jane, poor Jane Austen is like rolling in her grave. Like, really, Margaret? Really? I left you all of these clues and it's from the left field? Yep. Yeah. Okay. <sighs> Maybe you should stop looking at the saxophone players during marching band and focus on reading my book. <laughs> wow, that was a little, was that too real? Wait. Wait wait
0: what (laughs) (laughs) in my band all the hot guys were in the trumpet section oh it's interesting they're all assholes this is true all trumpet players are assholes
1: it's this is not true this is not true one of my dearest friends andrew is a trumpet player and he is
0: okay but probably he's also a Yeah. I don't know. We'll have to ask him. Only ginger trumpet players are okay (laughs) Okay. in my book. The rest of them are a bunch of assholes. Um, It's true. true. You know, it's true. Have some Um, wine, Kristen. Yeah. And uh, so, so, so. (laughs) Then, then the big insult. And uh, in the, in the book, it's hard. I, I feel like it comes across better in all of the movies. Because it does, it does. You see the
1: reaction, I think.
0: There's that awkward moment of silence that just hangs, which you can't really yeah, why represent Why don't you read the text? Well, why don't you read the passage? So here's Frank Churchill trying to make everybody talk again. And he goes, Here are seven of you, besides myself, who, she is pleased to say, I'm very entertaining already. And she only demands from each of you either one thing very clever, be it prose or verse, original or repeated or two things moderately clever, or three things very dull indeed. And she engages to laugh heartily at them all. Oh, very well, exclaimed Miss Bates, then I need not be uneasy. Three things very dull indeed, that will just do for me, you know. I shall be sure to say three dull things as soon as ever I open my mouth, shan't I? Looking round with the most good-humored dependence on everybody's assent. Do not you all think I shall? Emma could not resist. "'Ah, ma'am, but there may be a difficulty. Pardon me, but you will be limited as to number, only three at once.' Miss Bates, deceived by the mock ceremony of her manner, did not immediately catch her meaning, but when it burst on her, it could not anger, though a slight blush showed that it could pain her. "'Ah, well, to be sure, yes, I see what she means,' turning to Mr. Knightley." And I will try to hold my tongue. I must make myself very disagreeable or she would not have said such a thing to an old friend, which is sad. Oh, I'm so sad now.
1: I you know, read that. With such, it was so beautifully read. Now I'm really sad. Oh,
0: <laughs> because it is, it is very sad. It is. And, and, and you know, it does not really say that Emma feels bad in the book. But in the movies, it's uh, they, they usually adapt it. Certainly in the Gwyneth one, they usually adapt it so where she immediately knows she went right. she's gone too far, and well, I th- everybody just
1: kind of, oh, and then it's awkward. Nobody yeah. wants to look at anybody else, and Miss Bates is getting very upset and almost starts to cry. And it's just, oh.
0: it's really, it's, just, it's, it's
1: very hard to watch and or read.
0: Sort of like us. I mean, I mean that's Austin. Somebody taking someone else to dance is the highlight. It's like a huge crescendo of awesomeness. Yeah. Someone making an offhand comment that slightly, you know, this is somebody, is a, the deepest low. Because what we're talking about... happens. What we're, yeah, it really happens. What we're talking about yeah. is the tiny trade-offs, the tiny back and forths of everyday life that make up our lived experience and, and can really hurt us on a regular basis. I mean, I get upset mm-hmm. all the time. It's not like I ever have, like, a gigantic catastrophe in my life but somebody said something that hurt my feelings. It was like a one-off comment. And I'm like, yeah. Oh, you know, like those are the things that get us in our days. Those are the things that make up our life. And when, you know, I think we've all been there. I think we've all said something that thoughtless. That- yeah.
1: I was, I was going to say that I'm usually on the Emma side where I say something, you know, trying to be funny, haha, ha, entertain yeah. everyone. Cause I'm the class clown and it, it ends up being extremely hurtful. And I will then proceed to be, for years, I can remember something that I said in fifth grade Mm -hmm. that was rude, that I still regret. And we're talking like, what was that, like 25 years ago, if not more? Something so long ago, and I still regret saying it and hurting someone like that. And this is why Austin is brilliant, because these are the lives that we lead even
0: now. And we all understand what that can do to someone's self esteem. You know, we feel mm-hmm. for Miss Bates a lot because it is a personal tragedy in a way, and and because her her standing in their social circle is so tenuous anyway, which is right. one of the reasons that Knightley uses to get mad at Emma. Now Knightley, which, is- but I, let me just say before we get
1: into that, that is actually one of the things. So we talk about him mansplaining to her all the time, but I feel like when he takes her to task for this, as the as a modern reader. You don't really understand why it is such a big deal until Knightley explains. Yes, the the difference in their social classes, the difference in their age, in their socioeconomic backgrounds. It all adds up to why this was such a misstep, and so rude.
0: Absolutely, and and in uh, in the Gwyneth Jeremy Northam adaptation as a young, as a reader, who, as a young viewer who did not know what was going to happen, feeling that pain of the insult. And then in the next scene, he, he's sort of catching up to her. He's like coming from behind her. And he's like, how could you be, he's calling to her, how could you be so yeah. unfeeling to Miss Bates? And then he's saying all of those things, you know, like, she cannot stop mentioning it, you really hurt her feelings. And Emma's like, oh, come on, come on. She's trying to defend herself, but she knows. But, you know, with Knightley, she always has to try to defend herself. So right. Emma's like, you have to acknowledge that along the good, there's an equal amount of the ridiculous blended into her. And he goes, were she, were she prosperous or a woman equal to you in fortune, I should not argue about it. And then he, in the adaptation, he grabs her arm and yanks her around and goes, she is poor, even more so than when she was born. And if she should live to be an old lady, she will sink further still her situation being in every way beneath you should secure your compassion. <laughs> and he, he like goes off and he's mad. And he it's really the anger of the spurned lover, but mm-hmm. it's also the anger of, of, a, of a guardian who had higher expectations and higher hopes. So right. it's, it's all of that anger balled up together in this, into this frustration. He's a frustrated a spurn, you know, like um, that's really spurned, but you know, right. you know, He's not an acknowledged lover, and that was the scene. That was the scene for me. After I watched that, I was like, "I cannot oh, wait I get it. to see this movie again." I cannot wait to see this movie again and watch that scene again because that just came out of nowhere and it was like pow, you know, like right in your face. Mm-hmm. He was really pissed off, and um, is it, I said, "I don't know it. if it's in." The, I don't know if it's in the movie, but in the
1: I know it's in the book where he is taking her to task, and he says. And it's not just the difference that she's poor, but what I remember very vividly is, and of course I can't quote it because I'm not Kristen. <laughs> but basically, when Emma was a little girl, she would be honored if Miss Bates would pay her attention. But now that Emma is grown, it's the opposite. And because she is now the daughter of a very wealthy man, it's the opposite. And Miss Bates is flattered when Emma pays attention to her. And for some reason, that change and that for a reason why it was even more hurtful has really stayed with me.
0: I completely So you have agree. it. Can you read it? I do. I completely agree. And right before he says it, he says his other catchphrase, it was badly done, which badly done, adaptation Emma. is like <laughs> badly done in, 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 in the um, Kate Beckinsale, Mark Strong adaptation, he says it twice, which is really badly done. Emma. He's like always walking around badly done. Anyway. Um, your situation should secure your compassion. It was badly mm-hmm. done indeed. You, whom she had known from an infant, whom she had seen grow up from a period when her, her notice was an honor, to have you now in thoughtless spirits and the pride of the moment, laugh at her, humble her, and before her niece too, and before others, many of whom would be entirely guided of your treatment by your treatment of her. Yeah, because when you're a little kid... You know, and somebody mm-hmm. takes notice of you, which I'm sure Miss Bates always did, being a really sweet right. woman. And this is what you throw back in her face: you young upstart, you you young kid, yeah. not respecting your elders, which was a huge value at the time, right? Your duty right. towards other people, who, especially those who are older than you and your your elders.
1: It just uh, makes Miss Bates. Miss Bates is such. Uh, Miss Bates's character is, yes, she's comic relief and hilarious. And I talked about how I would just kind of skip her long monologues. <laughs> she is such an amazing character and so pitiable, which I hate to use because she, we've talked about how she is so cheerful. She's in kind of this really awful circumstance. She she is poor. She will only get poorer. She has very little future prospects, but she is so goddamn cheerful all the time and <laughs> she is such a wonderful person, yeah. right? She's so mm-hmm. friendly and she's so nice. And she's always respectful and always so excited to talk to people. And it's like kicking a puppy. It's like, Emma, you kicked a puppy. Mm. And when he lays it out like that and just kind of fully explains her situation that as a reader, you really get it. Yeah. And it's just, it's, so then you have I well at least me I have all this cognitive dissonance because on one hand I understand where Emma's coming from she is ridiculous there is an equal amount of ridiculousness on the other hand she is this she is in this situation Miss Bates that makes you should not ever talk to her like that and it's just oh it's so real it's so Austin yes
0: so like the that's so Raven thing theme, theme song that's so, that's so Austin. So. <laughs> <laughs> So that's Box Hill. That is incredible. Climax of the book. And then some of well, the happens.
1: book, but you know,
0: ha. Uh-uh. So should we bring <laughs> it home? I mean, should we talk about, should we bring it? have got to bring it home. We'll talk about that. You know, they finally work it out. Well, there is one last, um,
1: I mean, there is one last big, very sitcom Emma thinks, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? I've had way too much champagne where Mr. Knightley is going to propose to Emma, but she keeps stopping him because it's a big misunderstanding where she thinks he's going to say something else, but he just wants to say that he loves her.
0: Yeah. She thinks Harriet Smith has got it into her pretty little head that Mr. Knightley loves her when in fact, Mr. Oh, Knightley's Harriet. just really get trying to get her back with Robert Martin.
1: Right. And here, and- fr- frankly, let me just say, uh, the fact that Mr. Knightley is like, you know, Harriet's not so bad. Like that's huge praise for her, considering <laughs> he, started. Yeah. Yeah. he was not on the Harriet Smith train in any way in the beginning of the book. So the yeah. idea that he would be in love with her is just like Harriet. I don't even know what to do with you anymore. <laughs> well. <They're> just-
0: <laughs> But he did say, Emma did hear Mr. Knightley say, oh, she's actually not so bad. And she yeah. does know his high praise. And so when Harriet comes to her and says, I have, I believe I have proof that Knightley loves me. That's when it all bursts upon her. And it says it darted through her with the speed of an arrow. Um, right. And uh, that's finally her jealousy kicks in and her realization kicks in that she has to have Knightley. But now she fully believe, she she's willing to believe that Knightley wants Harriet. And so when Harriet leaves, Emma, I love this part. She, she says, Oh God, that I had never seen her. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, let me ask you a question. Um, not to take
1: us on too far of a tangent when we're so near the end. Um, do you think that if Harriet hadn't thought she was in love with Mr. Knightley, do you think that Emma would have thought she loved him? It's, it's very much like now that I seems like there's a danger of me not having him. Yes.
0: I, I now I'm you. in love with him.
1: Oh my God. I'm such a fool. I've been in love with him this whole time. Now that he might not be around for my every whim.
0: Yeah. I, I, I completely agree with you. And what if, what if she hadn't had that realization because of Harriet and he did come to her and he did propose to her the way that he does. Who know, would that shock her into realization? Maybe.
1: I but think that, she would have that,
0: said no. That belief. Yeah, probably. But that knowledge. Here's that's... the thing. I think,
1: okay. And we're in a hypothetical land. If if she did not have this realization on her part that she was in love with Mr. Knightley, and he had come to her and been like, I want to call you. I love you. I want us to be married. I think Emma first impulse would have been to say no, but bringing it back full circle if it meant that he would then be also removed from her life like miss taylor was upon marriage i think that she would marry him just to have him near her
0: does that make sense yeah she could have been jump-started and you know the belief what you know when he left after having been rejected she would she would realize that she would no longer be first with him there's a whole passage about how she she always took for granted that she was always first with him and right. how much that meant to her. And that sort of, um, it's not adoration, but it is a, a prioritization of her that of course she as a narcissist took as something for granted. And then she realizes how much it actually does mean to her. Well, it's
1: like we said in Northanger Abbey and Austin as the narrator says very clearly that sometimes the first thing that can attract you about someone is knowing that they are attracted to you.
0: That's right. And, and probably once jump started thinking about it, she would have yeah. acknowledged her own attraction, but let's talk yeah. about the proposal. Let's talk about nightly, the proposal and the post proposal when they talk about why they love each other. And then we'll be done. Not that we want to leave our listeners. No,
1: but this is, kind I of- just really want to, I want to go eat more girl scout cookies to be honest.
0: I understand that. So I'll be brief. And I can't do it
1: while the microphone is on. So
0: <laughs> this is kind of, kind of, it, it, it makes me feel the feels. I, I wouldn't say it's over the top romantic, but it does make me feel something because Knightley fully believes Emma loves Frank Churchill. He goes right. out of town. He is then, putting himself out there. As they say, he's like, I can't do it this anymore. This a big risk. I can't see them. I can't see. Yeah. Well, he, he leaves town, then he hears that Frank Churchill has been secretly engaged to Jane Fairfax all this time, and his first thought is of Emma and how right. heartbroken she must, must be, and she, he goes to her, he can't help himself. And I think that's really romantic, because he cares so much about her feelings.
1: It is romantic.
0: And then she thinks he's coming to tell her that she, he's going to marry Harriet Smith. Right. She doesn't want to hear it. This so, is the wacky
1: sitcom misunderstanding. Yeah, it's a
0: sitcom, sort of it's. I mean, it doesn't read as over the top comedy, but it is a sitcom. No, type. yeah, thing. I don't. I don't say that to disparage the
1: plot. I just say it in a. I just mean to say that it's a very kind of typical modern um, story. Well, not even modern. It's a very normal storytelling device where the characters think that something else is happening. And so you get a lot of doublespeak and misunderstanding of what people are saying, which is, I mean, Emma is a comedic novel, I think at its heart, right? Wouldn't you say? Oh yes. If you were going to describe it, you would say it was a comedy.
0: Oh yeah. And this absolutely. is
1: a, this is a very comedic, very, very typical comedic
0: device. Yes. I would completely agree with that. So Knightley said and no, I'll just read the passage. So Knightley is talking about Frank Churchill and he's like, everything, turn, everything turns out for the good, for, for his good. He meets with a young woman at a watering place, gains her affection, cannot even weary her by negligent treatment. And had he and all his family sought round the world for a perfect wife for him, they could not have found her super, superior. His aunt is in the way. His aunt dies. He has only to speak. that. Well, that... <laughs> Yes. I love that too, because
1: it's basically like Jane Austen calling out her own days
0: explaining. <laughs> <X-Men>, right? Yeah.
1: <laughs> Guess what? The aunt dies and Frank Churchill's rich. He can do whatever he wants. And it's just funny, like that one of her characters calls out the author on yep.
0: that. She plants a flag on it for sure. Um, he has only to speak. His friends are all eager to promote his happiness. He has used everybody ill, and they are all delighted to forgive him. He is a fortunate man indeed. You speak as if you envied him. And I do envy him, Emma. In one respect, he is the object of my envy. Emma could say no more. They seemed to be within half a sentence of Harriet, and her immediate feeling was to avert the subject if possible. She made her plan. She would speak of something totally different, the children in Brunswick Square, and she only waited for breath to begin when Mr. Knightley startled her by saying you will not ask me what is the point of my envy you are determined i see to have no curiosity you are wise but i cannot be wise emma i must tell you what you will not ask though i may wish it unsaid the next moment oh then don't speak it don't speak it she eagerly cried take a little time consider do not commit yourself thank you said he in an accent of deep mortification and not another syllable followed. Emma could not bear to give him pain. He was wishing to confide in her, perhaps to consult her. Cost her what it would, she would listen. She might assist his resolution or reconcile him to it. She might give just praise to Harriet, or, by representing to him his own independence, relieve him from that state of indecision, which must be more intolerable than any alternatives to such a mind as his. "'They had reached the house. "'You are going in, I suppose,' said he. "'No,' replied Emma, "'quite confirmed by the depressed manner in which he still spoke. "'I should like to take another turn. "'Mr. Perry is not gone.' "'And after proceeding a few steps,' she added, "'I stopped you ungraciously just now, Mr. Knightley, "'and I am afraid gave you pain. "'But if you have any wish to speak openly to me as a friend "'or to ask my opinion of anything that you may have in contemplation,' "'As a friend, indeed, you may command me. "'I will hear whatever you like. "'I will tell you exactly what I think.' "'As a friend,' repeated Mr. Knightley. "'Emma, that, I fear, is a word. "'No, I have no wish. "'Stay, yes. Why should I hesitate? "'I have gone too far already for concealment. "'Emma, I accept your offer. "'Extraordinary as it may seem, I accept it, "'and refer myself to you as a friend.' Tell me then, have I no chance of ever succeeding? He stopped in his earnestness to look the question, and the expression of his eyes overpowered her. My dearest Emma, said he, for dearest you will always be, whatever the event of this hour's conversation. My dearest, most beloved Emma, tell me at once. Say no if it is to be said. She could really say nothing. You were silent, cried he with great animation, absolutely silent. At present, I will ask no more. And then he says stuff like, I cannot make speeches, Emma. If I loved you less, I might be able to talk about it more, but you know what I am. You hear nothing but the truth from me. I have blamed you and lectured you, and you have borne it as no other woman in England would have borne it. Bear with the truths I would tell you now, dearest Emma as well you have borne with them the manner perhaps may have as little to recommend them god knows i have been a very indifferent lover but you understand me yes you see you understand my feelings and will return them if you can at present i just ask once only once to hear your voice which is pretty which is pretty romantic writing i have to say it really gets me every time because he's it's not overblown it's the language of like real feeling where he, he's like, I can't do, I, I'm not good at this. <laughs> like, I don't know what to say. And I just feel like, I feel like it's really affecting and it's very him and it's very fits the character so well. And is it beautiful? It is, it is romantic. I remember the first time I read it and
1: I was just kind of thinking the part where he calls her beloved and, I remember going back and thinking, did wait, did he just propose? He never actually says, will you marry me? Let's get hitched. I want like in the the movie, he says, I wish to call you wife. Um, In the book, he doesn't say anything like that. It's the fact that he uses the word beloved is kind of the big clue. And I remember just reading it and being like, Oh my gosh, he's proposing like, this is it. This is it. There's no down on one knee. There's no grand gesture. It's, by modern standards, it's not still exactly
0: clear what he's asking for a while more. what he's getting at. What he's asking for is her permission to try to make her love him. Mm-hmm. It's like a permission to, it's like. Which every asking?
1: woman knows is
0: totally sexy, right? <laughs> it's like the first, it's like, it's like very weird. There's really no, no modern analog. Because it's like you need permission to try to make someone fall in love with you. It, I mean, but it's very sweet because we have never seen him be so doubting right.
1: of himself
0: or of his own feelings.
1: Right. We've never seen him as a character be not sure of something that he has said. So the fact that he is almost asking permission to get her to love him. It's very, I don't know, it's very sweet. It is very romantic. I think.
0: I think it's romantic too. And, and there are so many beautiful passages relating to it, but the final thing we'll just talk about is that once they get together, we can talk again about how we feel about him being a father figure and growing into a lover. And there was that reference you made to him loving her when she was like 13 or whatever. But this is so adorable because he's talking to her. um, He's talking to her about why he fell in love with her. And he's like, I just, I was so invested in you. In the beginning of the book, it talks about him like saving things that she like made Mm -hmm. because he thought they were like proof of her intelligence and her good judgment. Which, by the way, Harriet does too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's such a good point. That's such a good point. Damn it, she has her little. She has her little box
1: of things from Mister Elton, Most right?
0: precious treasures, right? Um, he says, "How often, when you were a girl, have you said to me with one of your saucy looks, <laughs> Mister Knightley, Mister Knightley, I am going to do so and so? Papa says I may, or I have Miss Taylor's leave, something which you knew I did not approve. In such cases, my interference was giving you two bad feelings instead of one." And <laughs> I just think that's adorable. And so when he's saying, he says something like, by dint of imagining so many flaws in you and trying to correct you so much, I must have been in love with you since you were 13 at least, which you know, yeah. is like, okay. Well, you know,
1: and this is the thing. You know. This is the thing. As a modern reader, that's very squicky, right? But at the time, it, well, first of all, it was not unusual for women to marry very young. Maybe not 13 by that time, but still, it was not unusual. And second, when you have such a restricted social circle, the idea that you would marry someone that you've known your entire life was probably not that
0: not that yeah. Right, you marry. Your mean,
1: within the book, how many people do we see Emma hang out with? It's like like
0: twelve. Three yeah. yeah. Um, and then this is such an adorable passage too. Uh, he doesn't want her to call him Mr. Knightley anymore because, right. <laughs> like we were saying, you know, he used to be Mr. Knightley, the authority figure. Mr. Knightley, you always called me. Mr. Knightley. And from habit, it has not so very formal a sound. And yet it is formal. I want you to call me something else, but I do not know what. i remember calling you you george in one of my amiable fits about 10 years ago i did it because i thought it would offend you yeah as you you made no objection i never did it again cannot you call me george now (laughs) that's one of my favorite lines in the whole book and cannot you call me george now it's so it's written so arcane. so do you think that
1: emma continues to call him mr knightley i guess it's not unusual for married couples then to refer to themselves as mr and missus but even in private it's a little weird
0: i never can call you anything but mr knightley i will not promise even to equal the elegant terseness of mrs elton by calling you mr k <laughs> and then she says i'll call you once by your christian name when we get married it's cute. Mm-hmm. Right. so do you think she calls him that in private mr knightley time for bed yes i i do i do think so that's that's a little weird then but i don't i also gravitate to men who i mean obviously i did not marry one but i also (laughs) gravitate to men who are constantly telling me to be better and trying to interesting trying to be better Mm-hmm. Yeah, i definitely had a number of like when i was younger just like bad relationships like that where you're chasing after somebody's approval and you never seem to right. get it because they always have higher standards and that's of what he does to her with jane fairfax he, he always has this this higher standard but she doesn't yeah. let him she does not let him get her get her down she does not obsess over his opinion she wins his love by being her own person and it's a mm-hmm. Overall, it's a story that we can endorse. It's a story that we can get behind. I think people who just look at it and see him as a a bossy, condescending mansplainer do not understand the characteristics that she has that ultimately make them come together as equals.
1: Right. Well, this is a good segue, actually, into our first viewer question Oh yeah, that my friend Wendy left on our Facebook page, which we talked a bit about in our previous episode. But her question was, how do I like Emma as a character? Meaning, how can I get over her selfishness and her narcissism and her being rude to people? Miss Bates being a good example. So how do I come to like Emma as a character? And I think, why are you winking at me, Kristen? Oh, sorry, I said it my eye. <laughs> <high. laughs>
0: why should I be winking at my own podcasting partner, say, say?
1: Um, so the question is, how can you come, how can you reconcile Emma's kind of flaws and come to like her? And I think that if you go back and read the book again, I think it's easy to kind of paint Emma into a corner as the mean girl, as we've talked about. Um, but I think we have, as we've shown through our discussion, these past two episodes, there is a lot of facets of her character that are not negative. I think she, she, We have not, we did not, I don't think we mentioned this, but she goes regularly to the poor people in the area and brings them food and cares for them when they're ill. And she takes Harriet with her during one of the visits and she cares for her father and she loves her friends. And I think she would do anything for her friends. And I think there's actually a lot about Emma that's likable.
0: Faultless in spite of her faults, Mr. Knightley says, or or thinks anyway. And I tend to think that Mr. Knightley
1: is actually too hard on her. She was only 21, right? When right. I was 21, I was a mess.
0: I know. You know I know.
1: Emma's, yeah. she runs that house. She runs, she and Mr. Knightley basically run the whole estate for her father. Yes. I mean, I think Emma has actually got a lot of things that are very positive in her personality. She's so, extremely
0: mature for her age. Mm-hmm. Especially having been raised with you know, by a woman who always indulged her and a father who always indulged her. Right. So it's almost like we're lucky
1: she turned out as well as she did. Mm -hmm, And if she does tend to indulge her selfishness and her wanting to be liked and things like that, you have to, she is 21.
0: I mean, come on. Who can't relate to that?
1: right? So I, don't I think that it, it can be difficult to like Emma as a character at first blush but on a closer reading and I think if you go back and reread, I think that you can really see the good parts of her character. They really shine through especially, especially by the end.
0: Look. You do have to look but they are there. Austin gave us a solid foundation for her. It's just that people like me who are always the super shy nerdy girl getting picked on don't have a whole lot of uh, Sympathy, patience, yeah, I don't no, know. It's what? hard to
1: have sympathy for. I mean, Austin tells you in the first sentence of the book.
0: Yeah. Handsome, she's handsome, rich. clever and rich.
1: She's got everything going for her, right? Oh, so man. We're already predisposed to be like, what a bitch.
0: <laughs> you know that's the way Jane Fairfax thinks about her, too. Yeah. Oh, yeah. But then even later, even later in the
1: book, Emma really regrets not being closer friends with her, which I thought was a really mature thing to realize.
0: Yes. She has the The fundamentals are there she's just learning to sell his to course correct and frank churchill when frank churchill comes
1: in he definitely kind of brings out her less positive qualities mm-hmm. um, and we've talked about that too how sometimes you get around people where you can just kind of be a total jerk with and that's fun but they may not be necessarily the best people for you to hang out with um and show your good qualities because they basically just sit around and you know Talk smack about people and our jerks. Um, Yeah. Yeah, it's the best. (laughs) Kristen and I are friends. I'm her Frank Churchill. (laughs) Uh, So thank you for your question, Wendy. We'll encourage everyone to send us questions. You can either send them to our first impressions Facebook page or our email, which Kristen will let you know what it is.
0: It's first impressions podcast
1: at gmail.com. So please send us questions, Um, and we have a special guest coming up for our next episode, which we're very excited about. We'll just hint at it now. Um, What other old business do we have? We needed to tell people what we've been drinking tonight. I'm drinking
0: another Idaho wine from Koenig Vineyards. Oh, Lord. Uh, My bottle has absconded to the other room. Oh, here it is. Thank you. I
1: have been drinking this fabulous bottle of champagne. It's called Pommery. It is a product of France. It was a birthday gift from my wonderful friend, Kim, who was one of my Jazzercise instructors, who is amazing. So thank you, Kim. Um, I did not drink it my birthday weekend. I saved it for another special occasion, and I thought tonight would be a
0: lovely time to drink it. It was delicious, not too dry. I very much recommend it. Um, do we have any other old business, Kristen? No, I don't think so. Yo, this podcast has gone on for two hours. Really, we went for two hours. Yeah, because we started at seven thirty. It's anyway. Well, you know why? Why? Because there is a lot to take out. (laughs) (laughs) There's going to be a lot to edit out of this podcast. Let me tell you. (laughs) Oh yeah. Oh my god. It's going to be such hard work. All right. No, it's gonna. We appreciate it, everyone. So I just want to lay out right here for
1: everyone, and I don't know if Kristen will leave this in, but I just want to say, Kristen does all the work of this podcast. She comes up with the topics we're going to... Yeah, have another drink, Kristen. She comes up with the topics we're going to talk about. She writes outlines. She obviously has an encyclopedic knowledge of Jane Austen's books. She edits everything. She spends hours upon hours improving the sound quality and editing it. And I basically just show up and make a bunch of stupid jokes.
0: So she so, funny. That's the reason well, everybody listens is cause, cause no, I don't, because, I don't because think that that's true. True. <laughs> I know.
1: I don't think that's true. I think that people listen because they like hearing actual literary discussion, um, which you provide. And hopefully I can provide um, some funny comments, but I think that,
0: You've also made some you very, all very the hard work. Points. And so I just want everyone to know
1: that I am extremely grateful for all oh, the hard work that
0: that's you put so in. All nice. This. Thank you so much. And you have made don't don't undersell yourself because you have made some very insightful points too. Oh, well. Thank you for Arnie will be with us next time to drop the knowledge. So yes. Oh, would, get
1: ready, listeners. Get ready. Get, ready. get ready. This is our special guest. He is a oh, what is it? Like the BDF, like big deal fan. that's the like nice way of putting it without the profanity um in the jane austen community we are very excited for our next um episode to have a special guest who is let's he has some really really great um sort of not in the mainstream theories yeah, so it's, it's going to really be fun.
0: pushing the community. I think he's really push, pushing the community to open their minds and take a look at some <laughs> things and there are things that he has told me that now I now that I have seen them, I cannot unsee them and what is seen you, cannot be unseen. <laughs> yeah. I'll just give you this taster listeners. The name Jane Fairfax is repeated ad nauseum in Emma to the point where it's almost fetishized. Why don't they just call her Miss Fairfax? Mm. And also Jane is the the name of Elizabeth Bennett's older sister. So I wrote to right. Ari and I was like, why did she give not one, but two characters, her own name as an author, you're doing that. You, you know, you're doing that for a reason. I feel like you'd have to be doing that for a reason. Otherwise it'd be weird. Yeah. And so he was like, Kristen, call me. <laughs> So Kristen
1: picks up like her red phone that connects directly to Arnie. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs>
0: so the Arnie phone. <laughs> and he blew my mind. And now I can never unsee the things that he said. And it, they're fascinating. And um, there's theory in it. Anyway, and, you know, you know, we were talking about this book, Among the Janeites. And we did yes. praise it. And, and there, it, over, overall, it is worth reading. But uh, Arnie is discussed in that book. And he has discussed uh, that the author is not generous to Arnie. She takes a very dim view of him. And I think she does him a disservice. Mm-hmm. I think she is not open to the fact that, you know, he's done a lot of research and is worth respect as a person. Right. And so she's... we're, well, we're going to give him his, his forum. Yes, we are. We're going to explain
1: his theories. And um, perhaps if there is any kind of advanced reading or something that Kristen can recommend that, our um more obsessive listeners uh might want to look at or read before listening to the episode we can share that on our facebook page absolutely i'm sure that he has many articles that he has written
0: oh yes <laughs> many. oh yes there's a blog yes, yes. the sharp elves society yeah, i will so share we it should on definitely
1: facebook. share a link to that yeah for people to read well so we're very excited so this will be our emma part three coming up because we right. are going to be talking to arnie in the context of emma and I'm super excited to talk to him. By the way, Kristen and he have had a, a, a relationship. I don't, you know what I mean, friendship <laughs> um, for several years, I
0: believe. That's right.
1: Yeah, but oh, I okay. have actually never met him, never talked to him, so I am really excited
0: yeah, uh, to fun. talk to
1: him and hear his ideas and his theories. I'm just, I'm really ridiculously excited for it.
0: Yay! So Yay. on that note, we'll go ahead and say goodbye, listeners, and right. bye everyone. Know. All right. Thanks thanks. for listening. Thanks for listening.